Christ Church, New Malden. Sunday the 29th of October, 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Psalm 7. Well, we all know, not least if we are doctors, like uh, Tom and Sarah are, that there are some technical words that people need to learn if they're going to master a particular area of life. So whether someone is a doctor or doctors or a plumber, an electrician or an accountant, whether they're a nursery teacher or whether they work in retail, there'll always be some technical words that are used in those worlds. So when I was having my boiler repaired a few years ago, for example, the heating engineer told me with a solemn look on his face that I needed to replace my Surrey flange. Now, I didn't have a clue what he was on about, but it turned out to be the technical word for this particular gadget here. Some of you will know this. And understanding that term and what it referred to was clearly important to understanding the problem with my boiler and getting it fixed. And in every part of life, you'll all have your particular areas where you'll know a bit of the insider technical language. The technical language that's needed to be sussed if we're going to understand a particular subject. Now, when it comes to the Christian faith, we try very hard to avoid this, don't we, generally? And for good reason. Because nothing makes a church more uh, off-putting and less welcoming than when it employs a load of Christian jargon. When Christianese, as it's sometimes called, is constantly being used. Words and phrases that make little sense to those in the outside world. So we do try and avoid words, certainly here at Christchurch, like absolution, atonement, redemption, sanctification. They're important words, but we try to use sort of more normal English, more everyday English, if we can. But there are exceptions. There are exceptions and technical words that are really quite important to understand the message of the Bible and its relevance to our lives. And sometimes there are words where we can't really use the substitute without doing violence to what that important word means. And one of these words, particularly important to understanding the Psalms, is this word here, the word righteousness. Righteousness is a word that keeps being used throughout the Bible and particularly in the Psalms. It's a word that's sometimes used of God and it's sometimes used of God's followers. So what does it mean? Well, fairly obviously, righteousness refers to being in the right, doesn't it? But it goes deeper than that. It's a word associated with the covenant that God made with his people, the solemn agreement. You see, the story of the Bible is the story of a good world going wrong through the coming into that world of human sin. And it's the story of the same God who created that world being committed to restoring it. And God's way of doing that was by calling a people to belong to him. In the first case, the people of Israel, through the covenant that he made with them. And righteousness was a key word associated with that covenant, from both sides, actually. Used of God... Righteousness refers to God's commitment to his covenant promises and bringing his healing justice to the world, putting everything right, basically. But used of God's people, 
The term righteousness refers to their commitment to living in the faithful manner that keeps their part or our part of the covenant. And the story of the Old Testament is basically the story of God, on the one hand, maintaining his righteousness, and Israel, on the other, totally failing, by and large, to maintain hers. Israel's failure to be righteous, Israel's failure to maintain her side of the covenant, that's the big problem that needs a solution in the Bible. And it's a problem that eventually finds its answer in God sending Jesus to be Israel's Messiah and to fulfil both God's side of the covenant and Israel's. Now, during Advent this year, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be looking at the role of John the Baptist in preparing the way for Jesus. It's a good Advent theme because we're looking to the coming of Jesus. Now, you might remember in the Gospels, particularly Matthew's Gospel, the story of Jesus coming to John to ask John to baptise him, rather similar to the baptism that we've had this morning. And John initially didn't want to baptise Jesus. And he said, well, I need to be baptised by you. But Jesus' response to John was very telling in the words that he used, because Jesus said these words. He said, it's necessary for this to happen to fulfil all righteousness. And what that meant, I think, is this. Jesus came to fulfil everything that God's rescuing, saving love was meant to be on the one hand, but he also came to fulfil everything that God's people's response to that love was meant to be as well. And it's because of both of those things, that double fulfilment, that when we belong to Jesus through baptism, as we've seen this morning, we receive all of those blessings that God's covenant always intended to bring to the world. So how does any of that introduction relate to Psalm 7? Well, it relates to it because Psalm 7 is a psalm that's all about righteousness. And it's all about both types of righteousness, God's righteousness and ours. The subheading of the psalm describes it as follows. It says that it was a song, there's a strange word that we're not totally sure what it means, but it's probably a musical term, uh, shenanigan or something like that. Um, and it's a song of David that he sang, we're told, about Cush, a Benjamite. Now, unfortunately, we don't know anything else in the Bible about a man called Cush, a Benjamite. What we do hear about, however, in the story of David in 2 Samuel 16 is about David being cursed by a man called Shimei, who came from the tribe of Benjamin. And David was cursed by this man as he fled from Jerusalem following the rebellion of his son Absalom. And Shimei cursed David. We don't know whether he was right next to him or from a distance. He cursed David for David's shedding of the blood of the family of the previous king, Saul. Now, given that Psalm 7, that we heard a little bit earlier, describes accusations against its writer, this does appear to be part of the background against which we're meant to interpret or understand the psalm. So what does it say to us? Well, first of all, like many of the psalms, it appeals for God's rescue or deliverance, doesn't it? Let's have the words come up of the first part of the psalm. 
Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. That opening is very similar to others of the Psalms. It's appealing for God's rescue. The language is very vivid, isn't it? Some might say a little bit overdone, but that's how it feels when things are being said about us, doesn't it? If you've ever had the experience of people slandering you and saying stuff about you which isn't true, then that is a fair summary of how it feels. And part of the Psalms, as we're constantly saying in this series, is that they provide the language for us to express these feelings when we experience them. And then verses 3 to 5 that follow goes on to tell us the substance of these accusations against the psalm's writer. The writer of the psalm has been basically accused of these things, doing evil to those at peace with him, or her, probably him, and robbing his foes without cause. Now, that's not quite what Shimei accused David of when he cursed him, so perhaps the context is different. But it's nonetheless a series of fierce accusations against the psalmist that the psalmist is bringing before God. And what he then goes on to say is really fascinating. Because rather than hedging his bets and saying, look, God, if I've done anything wrong, which I probably have, please forgive me, the psalmist instead says this, If I have done this, and there is any guilt on my hands, the psalmist says, amazingly, let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. So what are we to make of this? Well, it's the prelude to the psalmist asking God to bring his righteousness, to bring his justice to the situation in the verses that follow. But crucially, when the psalmist appeals to God to do this, he asks that that judgment that God will bring includes him as well. So he does say these words. He does say, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies, and expands on that a bit. But then he says these words. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. It is judge, rather than necessarily vindicate, as it says in that translation. According to my integrity, O Most High, O righteous God, who searches mind and hearts and brings to an end the violence of the wicked and makes the righteous secure. And when we read those words, it brings us up rather short, doesn't it? Because it makes us realise that when we appeal for God's justice to come to the world, when we ask God to come and sort out the world and all the mess within it, we have to include asking God to sort us out as well. Because if we're honest, we are a massive part of the problem, aren't we? Like the people of Israel, none of our lives are righteous. None of them can stand before the judgment of the God who, to use the words of this psalm, searches minds and hearts. Appealing to God to sort out the world is dangerous because we're so much a big part of what's wrong with it. Or that would be the case but for Jesus. That would be the case without Jesus. Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, came to fulfil all righteousness. 
He came to embody God's righteousness, God's commitment to rescue the world and its people. But Jesus also came, as I said earlier, to embody that people in his faithfulness to God as well. So Jesus Christ was the only human being who could ever actually say those words from Psalm 7 and stand before God. And that's the reason why after Jesus died, that event was followed by his resurrection. Jesus dying was followed by his resurrection because that was the ultimate sign that he was vindicated by God. He was declared righteous by God through his resurrection. He might have been condemned by the Roman authorities for being subversive or whatever the charge was, but God reversed the verdict when he raised Jesus from the dead. And the crucial thing is this. If we belong to Jesus, which the Bible says we do through our baptism and the faith that follows and expresses that, then because of Jesus' death on the cross, which enabled God's judgment to be executed upon sin, we too can be declared righteous by God. Because the sin in which we share has been taken down to death by Jesus and got rid of. And that's what we were celebrating earlier when we had the baptism of Sarah, Matthew and Nicholas. Baptism at a church is a crucial moment, not just, as I said earlier, for those being baptised at that particular point, but for all of us, because it reminds us all that it's through being joined to Jesus that the righteous judgment that was declared on Jesus when he was raised from the dead is also declared of those who belong to him. That through being joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection, we've been washed clean. We've been set free from that sin that would otherwise accuse and condemn us. And I guess the challenge for us here on a day when we remember our own baptism through being part of the wonderful baptism that we had earlier of Sarah and Matthew and Nicholas. The challenge for us here is perhaps that of being really honest before God about our own lack of righteousness left to ourselves and the importance of seeking and understanding our righteousness as being purely through Jesus and what he has done for us, what God has done for us through Jesus expressed in our baptism. And even when things are being said about us that are unfair, even when we're being slandered or misrepresented, which will happen to all of us at some stage, this involves a certain amount of humility on our part. Now, when we go back to the story of David, we see this actually in this episode from 2 Samuel 16. When David is being cursed as he leaves Jerusalem by Shimei, Although the specific accusations that Shimei is making weren't true, David had gone out of his way not to shed the blood of Saul's family. David wouldn't let his soldiers kill Shimei or even stop him from speaking. And although we're not really told why, although David says that he wants God to vindicate him, probably part of the reason why David wouldn't let his soldiers kill Shimei 
was because David recognised that there were other ways in which he was guilty of being the man of blood that Shimei accused him of being. Not least through the time that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. Shimei might not have particularly cared about that because Uriah was a Gentile. But David knew that it mattered. David knew, furthermore, that he needed God's mercy and therefore that he needed to show it to others. And part of us bringing our tough experiences and poor treatment before God needs to be a similar humility. A humility that is prepared to recognise our sinfulness even if it doesn't quite correspond to what's being said about us. That's the type of humility that will actually lead us to show mercy to others when they fall short because we recognise that we need that mercy as much as them. As the old expression puts it, there but by the grace of God go I. And that grace, that gift of righteousness, it comes to us through Jesus. It comes to us through great David's greater son, as the hymn puts it, the descendant of David, as we near Christmas time, we'll be hearing the story of him born in the town of David, Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. And it's for that reason that we can say the rest of this psalm. This psalm is an appeal for God's righteousness, God's justice, to come and sort the world out. And if it wasn't for Jesus, that would be a rather terrifying prayer for us to make because we'd be part of the problem that would need to be sorted and receive pretty hefty judgment. But because of what Jesus has done, we can pray for God's righteousness, God's justice to come and sort the world out without fear being struck in our hearts. Humility, yes, but not fear. As St Paul says at the start of Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who, in Christ, who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. An important part of the humility of confessing our sin and allowing it to be borne by Jesus is recognising that all of the things that this psalm says about evil apply to us. But because of Jesus and because of what he has done for us when his death enabled sin to be condemned and its power defeated, we can also welcome and indeed pray for the righteousness of God coming to sort this world out. We can pray earnestly for its arrival. We can declare with the writer of Psalm 7 these words which finish the psalm. Let's have them up there. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High.